Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux. Hope you're doing well. Back with a good friend, Dr. Warren Farrell. He is a great, great writer, great thinker, the author of many best-selling books, including Why Men Are the Way They Are, Women Can't Hear What Men Don't Say, The Myth of Male Power, Why Men Earn More, The Startling Truth Behind the Pay Gap, and the new brand spanking new The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for taking the time today. I am looking forward to talking to you. You're always a, a bright, thoughtful, um, curious uh, interviewer. So this is, a, this is a pleasure for me. Thanks. So the first thing that I thought was that the real boy crisis is that there's no perception of the boy crisis. Well, that is a good part of the boy crisis. Um, the, and where that, where that part of it comes from is that historically speaking, um, we needed our sons to be willing to um, be disposable, to die in war um, so that we could survive. And so when you are training someone to be potentially disposable, uh, it's hard to let yourself psychologically attach to somebody who you can lose, who is responsible for your surviving. So there's a there's a tension between the biological instinct to be um, able to survive and the biological instinct to love your son is in tension with the biological instinct to make sure he prepares for war, to be able to make sure we don't become um, under Nazi rule or under whatever um, fear we had for each generation's war. And so uh, that is part of why when boys are at risk, uh, we aren't as as worried about it. And we've been trained to have boys be at risk, risk historically. And so that's that's one aspect of why the boy crisis um, has been ignored. Conversely, we've been biologically prepared to protect women. So when women in any way, shape or form um, compl um, cry, complain, express fears or feelings, uh, we have learned historically and biologically to compete with each other. Stefan competes with Warren and, you know, if we were normal guys and we try to sort of like uh, make sure that, um, that that you're the biggest jock in the, um, you know, in the protector group and or, or I am. And so, the, you know, what part of a, what part of heroic intelligence uh, was preparation for a short life, um, and whereas health intelligence is preparation for a long life. And so now our parents have a really a real challenge before them, which on the one hand, they want their sons to be heroes. On the other hand, they want their sons to be healthy. And so part of what I try to do in the Boy Crisis book is to look at why, um, why the very problems boys are having are so invisible to us. It's strange, too, because this elevation of masculinity into this Caesar bestriding the world kind of patriarchy, where we are, we have so much power and so much control and so much authority and so many privileges, it seems like a very sophisticated and elegant way of saying, shut up, men, we don't want to hear about your problems. And that conflation of massive power with coldness, if not downright contempt for emotional problems is a very jarring thing when you first begin to really see it. Yes, it really is. And <clears throat> throughout all of the women's movement's development, they've always said, you know, men have the privilege and men have the power. And particularly if you're a white man, well, I agree that white, white people have a type of privilege that, for example, African Americans do not have. And but there is a difference between white people and white men versus women. The, the, the power that men have, the um, earning more money is not earning more money for the same work. Um, the pay gap is not between men and women, it's fathers and mothers. 
And when a man and woman became a father and a mother, both the mother and the father had different expectations. The pressure on the woman was to um, is not only to is to risk her life in childbirth, and to uh, and the pressure on the man was to risk his life in war to protect the children that the woman bore, and so the additional money that the man made was discrimination against him. It was a result of the pressure on him not to be considered worthy if he wasn't um, if he wasn't earning more money than he was before um, he was uh, before he had children. Um, and so we we do see um, men earning more money than women, but instead of looking at that as privilege, um, most men who earn more money, go from driving a cab uh, 40 hours a week to driving a cab 70 hours a week when they would prefer to not drive a, drive a cab at all. Or they go to, um, you know, um, instead of being in a coal mine, they would prefer to be an artist. Um, the, the jobs that men make the most money at um, often take them away from love. Um, the father's cash 22 is that men learn to love the family by being away from the love of the fam their family. But when the Pew Research Center asks men who are fathers, who are full-time workers, which would you prefer to do, work full-time or be full-time involved with the family, 49% of men say, I'd prefer to be full-time involved with the family and not work outside the home at all, but I need to work outside the home because that's my obligation, that's my expectation, that's what our family needs the money. And so what we've seen as male privilege is actually not male privilege, it's male obligation and fulfillment. But when our son walks into high school and hears about male privilege and the, the message, as you said, um, really underneath it is uh, shut up, um, you're, you have male privilege, you, don't, you shouldn't, um, uh, you, you, we don't have to listen to you, it's the, the others of us that have not had this privilege that we need to listen to. It is an inv very inviting environment for him in high school or in college. And so, uh, and this is especially dangerous in college where you have, for, our, for many of our sons will be experiencing, um, most states in the United States have laws now uh, which are called affirmative consent laws, uh, where they can't even reach out to take a girl's hand or a young woman's hand without the possibility of if they do that and the woman is not interested and they haven't asked her ahead of time uh, whether it's okay to hold her hand, uh, she can sue him for sexual harassment. And once she does that lawsuit, uh, the chances of him, uh, he doesn't even have due process in the college or university. So this becomes a very fear-based time for many of our sons who are wanting to pursue the higher education that is necessary to have a good job that is necessary for a woman to be attracted to them. Yeah. And I've characterized it. People always say failure to launch, and I really characterize it as nowhere to land, which is a very different thing. And the sort of twin aspects, the, the causality is complicated, and you do a great job of exploring it in the book. The fact that war requires much less labor now than it did in the past, because you have weapons of mass destruction, means that men aren't even as valued as the sort of throw them into the fire like uh, vengeful kids with toy soldiers of war as the First and Second World War. So men aren't as necessary for war anymore. And through the welfare state, men are no longer required to provide resources for a woman to survive with offspring. And so I think there is this 
Amazing, and it, 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 I'm really of two minds about it, Dr. Farrell, because on the one hand, it's, it's catastrophic, but on the other hand, it is the kind of space or pause or option that allows for a reassessment of gender roles and carries within it, I think, the seeds of great possibility, which is if we can have a life outside of the biological necessities of provision and war, what possible lives could men have? And we kind of hang, I think, at a crossroads now between a sense of nihilism and a sense of possibility. Well, you're absolutely right. The you know one of the first chapters in my book looks at what the evolution of all this was, and I started out looking at 63 of the largest developed nations, all have boys do, falling behind girls in almost every academic area, as well as in social areas and social skills, and, uh, falling behind psychologically, being more likely to be depressed and suicidal. Um, falling behind in their physical health, falling behind in their IQs, IQs dropping, um, sperm count getting lower, um, social skills um, getting less and less effective as they immerse themselves in um, video games. And so I started asking myself, what is there about developed countries? Is there any commonality there? And I realized that in developed countries, there are two things that are much more um, allowed than in non-developed countries. One is permission to have divorce. Um, and that tended to lead to two groups of people. One was the group of, of, of um, boys that, had, that still had significant father involvement after divorce. And then the other for mostly a majority of boys that did not have significant father involvement after divorce. Then I looked at the women, the 53% of women under 30 in the United States who are having children without being married and discovered that, that among that group of women, there was also a division between the group of women who were not married when they had children, whose, whose fathers remained involved, and the group of women whose, uh, who had children without being married, whose fathers did not remain significantly involved. And again, among the group that had significantly involved fathers, they were doing not as well as, as children do in an intact family, but they were doing close to as well as that, versus an enormous gap between what I call the dad-deprived boys, the dad-enriched boys, and what I ended up calling the dad-deprived boys, when boys have minimal or insignificant amount of father involvement, they do terribly, I discovered, on more than 70 different areas of, of, of success, of um, being able to be empathetic, um, being able to be assertive but not aggressive, um, being um, when they have father involvement, much less likely to have depression, delinquency, uh, discipline problems, um, drinking, drugs, um, to be involved in computer um, game addiction, uh, to, as opposed to just computer games, which up to a point are very healthy, um, being involved in porn and addicted to porn. Um, and so in, in 70, uh, the far, when you look at ISIS recruits, they're almost, they almost all have in common uh, the, the lack of father involvement. Um, when you look at school shooters or mass shooters, whether it's um, Adam Lanza or Elliot Rogers or Dylan Roof or Nicholas Cruz or Stephen Paddock, they are all boys who did not have significant amount of uh, father involvement. And so there is this um, enormous divide occurring. And I would predict that this divide that came from advantage, the ability to survive, has ended up um, creating permission for divorce. And then boys don't have the same purposes today that they used to have. So one of the reasons that boys without father involvement are so um, uh, so devastated is because in the old days, even if you didn't have father involvement, 
you had two senses of purpose. You knew that as a male uh, that you had to do two things. One was prepare yourself to be a warrior or disposable in that way, or prepare yourself to be the sole breadwinner. Today, the warrior, as you said, is less important. The sole breadwinner is not the, uh, does not, does not uh, make a man's identity a man. And so the boys have to learn, how do I take a less defined sense of purpose and discover a sense of purpose? Well, the most important role model in helping him discover a sense of purpose is a father working through his, to working with him and, and helping you, his son develop two things. One is a sense of, um, of, of what he is as a boy, what he, what he is as a unique human being, what is most fulfilling to him. But once he decides what is most fulfilling to him, also how to have the postponed gratification mm. that gives him the ability to achieve what is fulfilling to him because the more fulfilling an occupation is, the harder it is to be successful at it because the more fulfilling the occupation, the more competition, the more people want to be there, the more competition. So therefore, the more discipline that is necessary to do an occupation that is fulfilling. So the boy has to have both a sense of um, what his uniqueness is and, and a father's uniqueness can help him discover that. Um, and then also has to have um, a way of having the of learning the postponed gratification that dads tend to bring to the family um, environment by enforcing boundaries more effectively. That's that tends to be one of their their mm. what they bring to the family table. And as you point out very eloquently in the book, in the past men were disposable, but they were praised, and yeah. now men are disposable and are insulted, and that's kind of a double whammy for a lot of men to try and navigate. And they don't usually have a very conscious or verbal, and this is why this books are so important, a conscious or verbal way of expressing what's going on. There's just an inchoate sense of negativity or futility or nihilism, and, and trying to find the problems and put them into words is a way, of course, of empowering people to at least recognize what's going on, which is the first step to trying to find pro uh, solutions. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and so part of what sometimes is mocked is, you know, boys getting in touch with their feelings. Well, we have to, we have to recognize that heroic intelligence was, has always been in tension, in, in tension with health intelligence. Heroic intelligence was the preparation of a boy for a short life. Um, health intelligence is the preparation of a boy for a long life. And where in the old days, we just focused on the heroic intelligence. Today, most people have a mixed feeling as parents. On the one hand, you want you know, your, your boy to be on the football team, and the football team is preparation for heroic intelligence or a short life. And the cheerleaders go first and 10, do it again. First and 10, do it again means first and 10, risk a concussion again. Uh, first and 10, you know, um, get across that, uh, that uh, to the, to the um, end zone, and we will cheer for you, and we will also approve of you, and we will also love you, and we will also have sex with you. And not only will we do that as the cheerleaders, um, but the you'll you'll be talked about in the school assembly. Um, your father will be saying uh, when you catch that touchdown pass, that's my son. He caught the pass. <laughs> and so we have to realize the social bribes we give our sons to be heroic that may undermine their health intelligence. And now for the first time in history, the good news is we can create a balance between the two. There's a lot of aspects of masculinity that are very important. Um, to know that when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going is very useful for up to a point. 
But if you don't tune into your feelings and find out when you go over your edge and you're willing to get concussions and spinal cord injuries that ruin you for life, um, then that's gone over the edge. In the old days, we couldn't pay attention to whether a boy went over the edge. We just admire him for, for, for toughing it out no matter what the situation was. Today, we have to balance boys not being too fearful, but at the same time, boys um, knowing that fear is a is a positive, is an emotion that warns them against being physically and emotionally hurt. Yeah, I think I've actually in my life heard more about carpal tunnel syndrome from women typing than brain damage from men uh, in extreme sports and, and at work. Now, the health gap is really, really important uh, because the health gap, there's a, a something which struck me like a you know, blow to the chest. When you pointed out that anyone, any medical researcher who could find a way to close the male-female gap in mortality would do more for human health than discovering a cure for cancer. Yes. What a statement. It really is. And we, there are so many things that we do um, for our sons, you know, th throughout all of their lives that um, that what I mentioned to you before about the you know, the the, the uh, football player and the father yelling—that's my son. That's what I call son dropping, and the and the message is very apparent that it's it's telling the boy you will be more loved when you when you risk your life um, or a concussion um, and doing doing what you need to do to score that touchdown. But what is very rarely picked up is that his brother in the stands, standing next to the father, uh, often hears the, the brother being praised who is risking his life, um, but not him being praised for his ability to be kind to his sister, uh, for his ability to um, call a, a, a play fair uh, when he's playing ping pong or something like that, and, and the, the, his opponent um, just nicks the head at the end of the table, but he could get away with calling it that the, his opponent missed the table, but he goes ahead and, and gives the point to, the, to his opponent and the opponent wins the game. That type of kindness needs to be, what I'm asking our parents, parents to do is to focus on many ways of giving your son um, attention and approval um, that, that leads to their long-term health because the connection between that boy who um, who calls the shot in favor of his opponent um, is that he develops a, a greater bond with his friend and the greater bonds are healthier, make that child feel uh, good about himself in school, develop more friends, are more like, less likely to lead to depression, alienation and rudderlessness. And so there are so many dimensions of, of how we, um, of the different ways that we encourage and discourage our sons um, we need to develop all. And so I have a whole series of litmus tests about what we can do as parents and you know, what do, are we encouraging our sons to do and what are we uh, uh, discouraging. And I think maybe perhaps the most important part of the boy crisis, uh, Stefan, is, is um, learning how to set up family dinner nights so that they don't become family dinner nightmares. Um, <laughs> family, dinner, family dinner nights are so um, pivotal in di differentiating successful children from less successful children. Uh, but many uh, parents don't know the absolute um, sine qua nones of setting up a family dinner night uh, that is that that without which um, it, it can, as I said, become a, a family dinner nightmare. 
Well, and I, I say this in my own family. Every now and then we drift from conversation and I say, well, I got into a family life because of conversation and very little else. That, that to me, that you build everything around conversation and, and take it from there because that's where the connection occurs. And I, I just, let me just tell you sort of an emotional response I had um, to, to, to the book. An immense feeling of frustration and chaos. And, and I'll tell you what that meant for me. Let me know what you think. It just feels like, and this has been particular since maybe the mid to late 19th century, we've just been engaged in these mad series of social experiments throughout the world. Like, I don't know, let's, let's create a system with no private property and no profit motive and the government owns everything. Hey, let's see how that turns out and, you know, kills tens of millions of people. Or let's try fascism or, I don't know, let's destroy the family. Let's create uh, family courts that are parent hostile. Let's create a giant welfare state and displace, displace men as the providers of the family. And, I mean, it's just these wild, let, let's take the father out of the equation. Hey, let's just see what happens. Let's just, you know, we'll just move the chess pieces around a little bit, see what goes on. And we're not really designed for those kinds of radical experiments. Yes, if they grow organically out of society, that's one thing. But it feels like, you know, the laws, the policies, everything is kind of just chaos and, and a whirlwind and emotional and cold in a way. Because to, to treat people in a sense as lab rats, you have to treat them as less than human beings. And in reading through this, and I do want to drill down a bit more in the details, there's just this, you know, over the last 50 years, hey, let's see how boys do without fathers and without male role models and without male teachers. Let's, you know, let's just roll those dice like Common Core. It was never tested. Let's just tra- change this whole education. Let's just see what happens. It's like, they're children. They're not guinea pigs. What are we doing? Yes, absolutely. You're uh, unfortunately absolutely right. And I think some of the evolution of this has been um, f- feminists wanted to have more opportunities for them in the workplace. And so I think it was wonderful that there was an expansion of women's opportunities and freedoms. Uh, but uh, something, a number of things happened in the process. One was um, feminism ad- adopted a hierarchical structure um, evolving from the uh, civil rights movement where there were slave owners and slaves. And then, and then Marxist, uh, Marxism where there were the privileged class and there were the oppressed class. And so rather than say, oh, with men and women, we're all in the same family boat, um, our mothers made sacrifices to risk their lives in childbirth and, 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 and they, risked, they made risks, they, they sacrificed their careers, they made sacrifices of careers, but our fathers made sacrifices in careers. Uh, so both, both mother and father were trying to do the exact same thing, which is make the types of sacrifices that were necessary so that their children could have lives that were better than theirs with more options, with more freedoms. And so, but the feminist movement didn't see that. They saw because men's role was to earn more money, they didn't see the obligation and the responsibility and the pressure on men to do that earning of more money. They called that earning of more money privilege and power as opposed to an experience of powerlessness uh, that they had, that, that the men had to experience in order to earn more money. So they didn't look they looked at men earning more than women do and said, okay, men earn a dollar for 79 cents that women earn as if it was for the same work, which it nowhere close to is. And then they said that's um, male power as opposed to understanding that that was discrimination against men. It was discrimination. Well, I mean, just, and sorry to interrupt, but just, just for men as a whole, you ask yourself this question if you're a, a father and particularly if you're a provider for a family. Let's say you get a big raise. Do you sit there and say, woohoo, that's all for me? 
Yay! I get all this money. I can go buy a boat. Uh, you know, you, you recognize that you're going to get to keep pennies on the dollar if you're lucky <laughs> from that raise. If you're single, you might say, I can go buy the boat so I can yeah. attract a woman who wants children so I can eventually spend, divide my money more with other, with other um, people. Um, but if you're married, you absolutely know that if you're going to be at all respected or um, that you are going to be a father who is going to put the primary money to making sure that children are healthy, they live in a good neighborhood where they can have access to good schools, the types of friends you want, and all of that costs mortgage money, tax money, um, orthodontist money, and um, you know, and security blankets in order to be able to deal with emergencies and, and so on. And so, and, and that's what the feminist movement completely misunderstood. So it, 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 it demonized, so it's, it's, its core challenges was that it tended to demonize men and turn and also undervalue the family. And then the, and so by emphasizing female freedom, what ended up happening is that, um, that women um, said, well, now I'm free to have children without having fathers but without recognizing that you are free to have children. But the second you have children, it is your obligation to put your children's welfare above yours, and therefore you are not free to not have fathers involved. You're free to, um, to make a decision as to what leads to the best outcome for your child, and, the, and your child's best outcome is almost invariably, not exclusively, but almost invariably, going to be a lot better um, if you have both a mother and father involved, and not just the father earning money, um, but the father's the, the understanding the contribution that dads tend to make to the family. And this is the crucial thing because many times there's mothers and fathers involved, but the father is off earning, uh, the father experiences a father's catch 22 in which he learns that the way to love the family is by being away from the love of the family. And therefore his son doesn't get a chance to see him a great deal. And while that is useful for earning money to live in nice neighborhoods, uh, we now know that children do, especially boys, do much better with time with dad than they do with the dime from dad, so to speak. <laughs> um, they they are far more likely to, um, to and, and and so let me be very specific as to why. And this, by the way, applies to girls as our daughters as well, but it just applies to a greater degree to, uh, for our sons. Um, a mom and dad will tend to. Um, bring to the family table different qualities. So if the child is having, they'll both say, um, you can't have your ice cream until you finish your peas. Um, but the, um, the, but, uh, and, the, and the child will do the same with both parents, test the boundaries, try to have as few peas as possible before it gets its ice cream. Um, mom will then tend to sort of try to negotiate a few more peas, like, um, sweetie, you didn't finish your peas, but maybe could you have a couple more and then you can have your ice cream. Um, so the child learns, aha, with mom, I can manipulate a better deal. Um, with dad, the, the, the dad's more frequent response is something like, um, excuse me, we have a deal here. The deal is you finish your peas, you get the ice cream. Um, not You don't get to renegotiate most, after the fact. You don't, exactly. You don't get, get to negotiate. And so the boy goes, oh, you're so mean. You know, dad, mom, let's be um, sort of have um, my ice cream sooner than you do. I want to go with mom. 
Um, and so the dad goes, you can continue um, complaining uh, about the this this um, restriction. Uh, then you'll have no ice cream tomorrow night either. Well, now the kid is furious, but the kid learns that when dad's rules apply, um, it has no option but to finish the chore that's assigned. That is to, and that's the beginning of, of learning postponed gratification. And, and life and adulthood. I mean, you know, you go for a job, say, oh, I want $50,000 a year. I'm going to work five days a week. And they say, sure, okay, come work for us. And then you're like, you show up and then on your second day, you know, I think 60000 for four days a week is where I'd really like to take this. And they will help you take it just out the way you came in. That, that's kind yeah. of life. That's reality. Yeah. You know, as I said to my daughter, you know, we don't get to renegotiate the mortgage after we sign the papers. You know, when we sign the papers, that's your promise. And the promise is not something that's fluid. It doesn't have a tailspin that you can play with. Yes. The promise is the promise. It doesn't mean you can never renegotiate, but uh, it's pretty rare. And it is at the discretion of the person you, I mean, we can go and renegotiate with the bank if we want. Yes. But we have to ask them on bended knee, would you mind, please, 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 as opposed to, I think I'm just going to change my mortgage payment. Absolutely. And at, at the level of the boy and girl crisis, when the, the translation of that is when the father, um, w w when the boy does not have that postponed gratification coming from boundary enforcement, the boy then has maybe the, the parents love the boy because he's sensitive and sweet and so on. And they encourage him to have dreams. Uh, well, he goes to school and he doesn't have the postponed gratification to even finish his homework. So he becomes a little bit ashamed of himself when the other kids are getting better grades than he is. That doesn't feel right to him. The girls don't sort of respect him because he's sort of sort of like a failure to land and failure to launch. And um, and so the um, the girl uh, when when it gets to be dating time, uh, girls tend to go out with winners rather than losers. And so he senses that he's being rejected or rejected or avoided by the girls. Uh, that that guys don't have a real respect for him. That teachers don't aren't nominating him to the honor society. And so he begins to withdraw to maybe something he can succeed at, like identifying with a character in a video game, mm -hmm. and then becomes addicted to that as he's able to win in video games. Um, but the more he gets addicted to that, the few, and the fewer friends he has at school, the more he feels this sort of discomfort and this alienation and this and this rudderlessness. And when he has a dream, like I want to become, I'm really good at basketball. I'm, I'm tall. My dad is tall. Um, so I'll play basketball and I'll be an NBA player. And then he can't even um, follow the routines of the of the different strategies that the coach um, operates because he gets uh, distracted by a video game or distracted by something else. And so, or an, 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 um, and, uh, you know, a, a, a message from a friend. Um, and so he, he gets distracted and then and then it's not as a failure at that also. So the bigger the dreams that his parents paint for him, saying you can do anything you want to, Jimmy, uh, the bigger his disappointment is in himself. And that's what begins the cycle that sometimes in its worst case scenario leads to depression and then often in its worst case scenario, suicide. And in its super worst case scenario, uh, the mass shootings that we see when a boy feels, OK, um, for the for one time in my life, I can get someone's attention. Maybe they'll ask, what am I about? Who am I? Well, he was a sweet boy. They'll say nice things about me. And um, and so if I shoot up this school, um, that'll show them. And that you know, and that's the that's that slippery slope um, that happens when father involvement doesn't lead to the postponed gratification, and that's just one of many characteristics of fathers contributing to the family that is that needs to be integrated in order for our children to do and are the best, and especially our sons. Yeah, this 
great intergenerational challenge. And I, I'm, I speak a little bit from personal experience. My parents split up when I was a baby. And mm -hmm. I did see the difficulties that my father had with the court system and so on. And I think for, I, I was really struck by your description around the world. This is not just, of course, in North America, but in Japan, where you have these, uh, these uh, herbivore men, the dry fish ladies who just, they look at the past and they say, okay, so success for my father was working 80 hours a week and dropping dead at 55 of a heart attack while shoveling money at the family and never seeing anyone. That is not success. And other men will say, well, looking at my father, you know, there's a smoking crater where, frankly, his balls were, was taken out by the family court system and, uh, you know, rampaging hostility and, and male indifference and ended up living in a car down by the river. So that could be my future as well. And if we don't have things to offer young men as a society, like how do the wild energies, testosterone, ambition and, and aggression of young men, how does it get, in a sense, tempered into something that's productive and useful to society? Well, you have to have something to dangle in front of young men in order to gain their allegiance to social norms. And when society doesn't really have much to offer men, we, you're not going to get respect. Uh, if your wife decides to leave you, you could get completely destroyed through the family court system. Uh, if you make more money, we're going to tax you more. And if you go to school, uh, you're going to be told that you're bad for being male or bad for being white. And, you know, if you look at a woman the wrong way or she has a drink and then kisses you and regrets it, your life could be destroyed. We are running out of things to offer young men. And if we don't have things to offer young men, I have no idea how we can ask their allegiance to social norms. To I so agree with you, and this is absolutely in, in accord with my with the findings in the boy crisis. It was like the old days. If you think what the word respect means, and it's um, when we 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 gave our boys what I would call social bribes to be willing to die, and because they put on uniforms that girls respected, most girls were more interested in marrying the officer and a gentleman than the private and the pacifist. And, um, and most parents were more proud of their sons um, if they were a, an officer in, the, in, in any of the military branches, um, as a, or in the, especially in the elite ones like the Navy SEALs, et cetera, um, than they would if their, their son had gone off to uh, Canada to become a conscientious objector, even against a war that they ended up disapproving of. And so, the, so these were all ways that we said to our sons, we will respect you if you are willing to risk your life and possibly die or come home with PTSD or paralyzed. Um, the, and the fact that they knew that they could get respect this way, they were willing to give everything of themselves, including their life. Now what we need to do is to find different ways that we respect boys because as you said, every way a boy turns, if he succeeds, he's told he has privilege. If he doesn't <laughs> succeed, he's ignored. If he opens the door for a woman, does he think that a woman can't open the door for herself? And he's a male chauvinist. If he doesn't open the door for the woman, he's impolite and disrespectful of women. And so if he, um, if, if he, if a woman says no and he backs off immediately, the woman gets a sense that mm, the guy is a little bit weak. If the woman gets no and he, and he tries to figure out other ways to get her to say yes, He's a potential date rapist or a sexual harasser. And so, uh, and this is, understand, this interfaces with so many other things. The environment are the, the for example, in rivers and streams and, and lakes, uh, we, we, we have plastics that, that leach their thalates into rivers and streams and lakes. And these thalates um, exude 
um, estrogen. They mimic estrogen, which develops our daughter's maturity faster than our son's maturity. So the, the, the gap that you and I all knew about, that where girls in adolescence matured more quickly than boys, all around the country and around much of the world, this gap is increasing even more. But with, with the girls being significantly more mature than the boys, we're still saying to boys, boys, you have the expectation of risking sexual rejection by reaching out to, to these girls. And by the way, sex is dirty, but you risk, um, you, you risk being the dirty jerk um, who, um, who takes the initiatives. Girls can do it by option, but you have to do it by expectation. Um, and so, so you have the less mature sex expected to initiate something he feels ashamed of, his greater desire for sex, which in this culture is akin to dirty jokes, and he and he then can't um, if he doesn't have an interest in sex, he he has a low testosterone level that makes nobody interested in him. If he has a lot of interest in sex, he's more likely to reach out and make mistakes. Um, but we aren't asking our daughters to share the responsibility of risking rejection. We're asking the less mature sex to take the primary responsibility and to compensate for their inequality to women's um, possible sexuality by paying for them, paying for their drinks, paying for dinners, uh, paying for the expenses of driving. And then we're saying women are equal to men in, in responsibility, but they're not. They're only more than equal to men in their ability to be able to credibly accuse a man of doing it incorrectly, as opposed to sharing the burden for being incorrect or correct uh, themselves. And so as a result is we're not preparing our daughters for the key thing that would be helpful to our daughters' careers, which is taking risks. All the risk takers um, that have made money in our generation have been the Stephen Jobs, the uh, Bill Gates, uh, those are people that didn't have companies that discriminated against them. Uh, they didn't have to climb a ladder where the people at the top were males. They built their own ladders and their own companies out of their garages. And um, and but, and they did it largely by risk-taking, calculated risk-taking, and an extraordinary amount of hard work. Um, and so we're not preparing, by not preparing girls to take risks and sexual rejection, we're also not preparing them to take risks that will help them succeed independently and on their own terms in their life. And we're also not encouraging them to, to, to take the risks of, of, of what I call um, original choice power as opposed to veto power. We're, we're telling veto power is what we've traditionally trained our girls to do. You either veto or accept a boy's initiatives. Oh, the man proposes, the woman disposes, right? Okay. Yes, exactly. And we're not, and we're not asking girls to do that by by expectation. We need to serve our daughters better because when children choose guys that they're interested in, that have body language that they're attracted to, uh, they make original choices and they take risks with those original choices. And therefore, the women, the girls, are likely to become women who are happier in their marriages. And one thing that we know that Gottman has also um, uh, helped us see is that um, when it, it, it is true, um, happy wife, happy life. And so if happy wife, happy life is generally true, uh, we need to have women uh, take charge of their life by having original choice power rather than veto power. And so we have to help our daughters do that um, at places like family dinner night and avoid both the boy crisis and the crisis of not having our daughters be able to take risks that help them determine their own lives. Yeah. And I think that's the origin of the general notion that one of the problems these days is that 
women want choice without consequences and men don't want responsibility without authority. And this is all, I think, fairly comprehensible and one of the great challenges of modernity with the relationships between the sexes. And it is, it is so confusing. And I get lots of messages from young men in what I do, as I'm sure you do too, saying, you know, with all due respect, Mr. Middle-Aged Guy, it's a different world out here now than when you were young. And to me, one of the great watershed moments, I'm curious what you think, it's a little outside the scope of the book, but I'm just, I'm really curious what you think. The Fifty Shades of Grey explosion in the emotional, literary, and sexual landscape of the West to me is quite astonishing. Because I was raised, uh, women want a sensitive man, they want a man who's emotionally available, they want, you know, money doesn't really matter. And like the biggest selling book in the entire history of humanity, uh, outside of religious texts, of course, is a sociopathic guy who can beat up a woman if he has a big enough helicopter. And and women love this stuff. And it it's just a little confusing. <laughs> confusing. Like, we hate patriarchy, but you know what would be great? If we bring in millions of immigrants from patri- really, really patriarchal cultures, that would be excellent. And it's like, what, can, can a brother get a consistency vibe here in any way, shape, or form? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I have never read a romance novel that was titled, He Stopped When I Said No. And, you know, <laughs> and all the way back to uh, Heathcliff, right, from Wuthering Heights. Yes, no, absolutely. And and then, you know, the, what is the number one? You were touch, just talking about the number one best-selling um, fiction fiction book is clearly, you know, almost sadomasochistic in its orientation. And 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 it's not men that are buying this; it is women that are buying this. What though is the single most biggest grossing movie of all time? It's Gone with the Wind. And Rhett Butler doesn't when you know Rhett Butler doesn't say, "Oh, if you're not interested in going upstairs, that's okay, no problem. We'll stay down here and have a good conversation." Um, but the women are reading the books where she's dragged upstairs and ends up becoming happy in the long run, and it's called romance. So guys are seeing women talk about this as romance, and then also and 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 the sales, uh, ninety or so percent to women. Um, make it clear that this is one message women are delivering about what they really want. And then another message of what women, what women are delivering is um, coming up through the feminist movement and the the development of the affirmative consent, where a, a guy um, who does not ask ahead of time whether a woman would like to hold his hand um, and make sure he has a ser- series of contracts with him for each stage of advancement in that um, in that sexual uh, endeavor that the woman can sign, yes, you can hold my hand. Yes, you may kiss me on the cheek. Yes, may you may kiss me on the lip. And if she doesn't sign those things, he is vulnerable in court to her saying, I wasn't interested and I didn't say yes to him saying she did say yes, either in her body language or verbally. Um, and so these are things that are making it you know, very difficult for the less mature sex in high school, the boys, to understand about girls and women and to also have, we say we want boys to respect women. Respect emerges from accountability, mm. not from some, not from the sex that blames the most. And so we really need to have, uh, and, and when you go to work, it doesn't, it doesn't, when, when it, human resources becomes not HR, but H-E-R, her. Um, and it's only a monologue and not a dialogue. When me too, hashtag me too, doesn't include the two that is also males that are being complained about and what their story is. 
a mature, accountable hashtag MeToo would be having full respect for women's perspectives, but then also asking about men, what do you think? What's been your experience? And paying as careful attention to the boys and men um, as we do to the girls and the women. And so we need to move the cultural um, zeitgeist from a monologue to dialogue around gender. Right. Now, I think something that's also very important, this is sort of two bookended ideas. The number one was when you talked to fathers-to-be or, or, and so on, or, or pregnant women, would you rather have a boy or a, or a girl? And the answer was overwhelmingly a girl because of, I guess, female in-group preference and, and gynocracy and so on. But it also struck me that, of course, a lot of parents, as you point out in the book, are blaming themselves for what's happening to their sons. And when you take the view, as you do, this is uh, from uh, uh, part one, chapter five, the crisis of our sons worldwide. If it's happening around the world, you are involved in the problem, but you are not the source of the problem. And I, I really want whatever I can do to give or we can do to give parents that sense of relief. Because blaming yourself and feeling guilty is not going to motivate you to do what is necessary to begin to address these problems at a in a larger context. So how uh, we touched on this earlier, but just expand a little if you would. How are the boys doing all around uh, yeah, the world? Yes, and what does this mean for parents? They're doing terribly uh, in yeah. developed nations for the reasons that I was mentioning before about the divorce and the lack of father involvement is one of the major reasons. Things like the environment and the leaching of phthalates is another reason. Um, but... Um, but in, the, in places like Japan, uh, where there used to be a very strong sense of purpose when boys were trained to be warriors and part of the Axis powers, and then they lost in World War II, and the United States took over a protector role uh, for J Japan, taking away um, their ability to defend themselves and us playing that role of defender. All of these boys who were growing up to be warriors suddenly were being taken care of by the United States. And so they didn't have any role of warrior to, to develop, to look forward to, which in one way is wonderful. It helped help world peace. And, you know, who wants to really train your son to be dead? And so the uh, so that's that's the wonderful part of it. But the bad part of it is that without father involvement, these boys didn't know what to replace the purpose. Um, the per sense of purpose became a purpose void. And one of the reasons why fathers are so important today, even more probably than ever before, is because moving from a purpose void to a sense of a purpose, one that allows your son to be his unique self and also allows him to be responsible is a very nuanced journey where there has to be a sense of of ability of the family to speak with each other, to talk about what is coming up at school, what it means, how to navigate it, for the, your son to have emotional intelligence, for your son to have discipline, follow through, but also explore his unique self, to know the trade-offs of becoming some somebody who is a, a fulfilled person. My father would say to me, you know, Warren, I see you're a good writer and you want to become an author. But basically, that's no way to support a family, young man. Um, you know, uh, and you know that you 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 have to, and you don't just have to get your PhD. You have to get your job. And when I didn't get a job um, right away, I wrote a book instead. He said, "All right, you lucked out this time, but you're still not an author, and you better not plan to be an author." And then I got a second <laughs> book, and it wasn't until I got a good contract for my third book 
that my father said, well, I guess you're one of those one in 10,000 that actually can make a living from writing. Um, so you managed to save for your retirement by playing the lottery. That doesn't mean yeah, it was a good yeah, decision. Exactly, right? exactly. And when, you know, one of the myth of male power didn't do as well as, you know, books before that had done, because I tried to explain more of the male perspective in that book. Um, you know, then he was like, I told you so. <laughs> you know, and so it was, um, it, it's very, so the, the important point there is that around the world where there is a purpose void, um, there is even more need for fathers to help bond with children so they don't rebel against doing the postponed gratification that is so necessary to being able to complete their homework, complete their chores, do the things that are necessary for accountability and they are, that are also necessary for being loved. Women are not interested in men reading the boy crisis in the unemployment line. Uh, they want <laughs> they want guys who are you know they, they they do care about sensitive men, but they don't care about sensitive Clark Kent's. They care about Superman, who Lois Lane is willing to says you know I want you to cry, but she didn't want Clark Clark Kent to cry. She just wanted Superman to cry because they, women are more interested in men who have it together and are strong protectors first and then, be, and then are able to be vulnerable afterwards. That's a tough road to, to haul, but it is possible. But it's possible at, uh, when mothers and fathers know how uh, to honor the best aspects of what they each bring to the family table. Right. There's a very a powerful argument in the book sort of reminds me of that old Oscar Wilde line of the only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. And yeah. for culturists, the only thing worse than failure is success. And we've seen this when wealth arises in a country. What happens is the women generally end up flocking more and more to female traditional occupations because there's more wealth in the family, which gives them more choice. So why do more marriage, mar why do more marriages fail in countries to succeed? Well, um, because women are usually married to men who are still um, able to earn as much or more than they, even if a woman is earning a fair amount, uh, she wants a man, to, she either doesn't want a man in her life because she doesn't want one more um, um, child to take care of is the way she looks at it, um, or, and, or she finds a man who, who is able to earn more than she does. And so the more she earns, the more she's free to um, up her ante about what she wants in emotional intelligence from a man. And so there's a lot of good news in that. And the good news is that we guys have to work on developing emotional intelligence exactly because we're no longer the sole providers to women. Um, and so women can't just depend on us for money, keep their mouths shut, put their heads in the sand, and, and, um, and know that they have no choice but for men as a security blanket. Um, but on the other hand, what women are not doing, what, um, and girls are still not giving women the signal, boys the signal, that they're interested in a boy, uh, that they're interested in being a have-it-all woman. And what they can do as a have-it-all woman is to work full-time, have a career that's really successful, but be okay with or even honor a man who stays home full-time and is with the children and is a father warrior, if you will. We know now that children raised predominantly by fathers never lo rarely lose their mother because the mother will always make time for the children. So when a child and, and also when children are raised predominantly by fathers, they're very likely to have a positive view of the mother. They're likely to have boundary enforcement. They're likely to have very good 
bonding with the father. They're likely to get to bed on time. They're likely to be far more healthy. Uh, they're likely to be um, very upbeat and um, productive. They're likely to very unlikely to be criminals, depressed, um, and have any of the other 70 um, sets of problems that are documentable that children have when they don't have father involvement. But we need to know how to educate women and how to educate men about what they contribute and why. So for example, a man will be far more likely to roughhouse with his child. Mm. And, um, and, and for longer because he's stronger. Uh, for, for longer, both because yeah. he's stronger, but and also because he's just inclined that way. You know, um, a mom can be roughhouse with a child, and uh, the children and, and mother can bond very effectively doing that. But as a rule, fathers are the ones to do that. But when fathers are doing that, mothers are often looking at and saying, um, you know, Stefan, um, don't don't get too close with the kids to the to the to that table there because they could hurt their head on the table or you know the couch is is why don't you do this during the day not at at night um, and so no um, food fights in nice restaurants yes I know yeah exactly right or um, the, the mother is saying to herself even if in the, just in the back of her mind. Oh, Stefan or Warren, they're just one more child. It's like I had three, but now I have four. And if, it's just, have you seen that? It's a great meme. It's a father throwing the son up on a beach. And like what's actually happening is that the kid is like three feet. What the child feels is like 10 feet. What the mother sees is like 30 feet of death and doom. And yeah, that stuff. I so agree with that that, I, that, that, that that meme is in the boy crisis book um, as, as, as so typical. And so the, the mother, so what the father needs to do is to know that first, roughhousing is a way of helping your, his child or um, girl or boy make distinct distinctions between being assertive and being aggressive. A child, if the child hits the father in order to win at wrestling or kicks the father in the groin or pulls the father's hair or pokes the father in the eye, the father goes ahead and says, you can, you can win at wrestling by faking me out uh, or doing a number of other things, um, but you can't win in wrestling by doing these things that are aggressive, not assertive. And then because the father is willing to enforce boundaries, if the child goes ahead and repeats the aggressive process, the father just says, okay, that's the end of, um, that, that's the end of um, uh, roughhousing for the night. And if the, the kids go, oh, no, no, I won't do it again. I won't do it again. The father says, you already had your warning. And, you know, we'll, we'll pick it up tomorrow night and see if you're any better. Um, but so the, the child learns... I have no option but to be assertive rather than aggressive. Then, but the the roughhousing creates a bond, and the and almost all dads unwittingly, but not being able to articulate it, use that bond to say something like, um, "I'll tell you what, bedtime is nine o'clock. Um, if you're finished everything that you need to do, like chores and homework, um, by eight thirty, uh, we'll uh, we can have roughhousing or doing anything you want to do. I'll read you your favorite story between eight thirty and nine o'clock." And so the boy then focuses on getting all those things done. And if she uh, or he gets can't do them by nine o'clock, the father says, sorry, you didn't do it by nine o'clock. That's you, you, no roughhousing. Uh, whereas the mother's more likely to say, the boy's like more likely to say to the mother, well, I, I, it took me longer because I needed to do my homework. Or you wanted me to do my teeth really well, so I did them really well. <laughs> And manipulate the mother into saying, okay, those are, things are all true. I'll tell you what, we'll move the bedtime back to 9.30. And so the data shows really clearly that the, that the father that sets um, a, a bedtime specifically sets the bedtime later, but the children get to bed earlier. 
for reasons like that. And the the child doesn't resent the boundary enforcement that the father does because it's bonded with the father through the roughhousing. And so, but no father that I've ever met explains that to a mother and mothers can't hear what fathers don't say. And so, you know, one of the reasons I really encourage fathers to not just, you know, many, the publisher always says, oh, mothers of sons will really love this book and get a great deal out of it. Well, I'm saying fathers, you need to take responsibility. We, we complain about women not being accountable. They often aren't, but we need to be accountable in terms of learning what we contribute and communicating that to, um, to the women in our lives. Right. Now, for those men who are out there who are teetering and facing divorce or going through the process or something like that, you have some very good advice. The four must-dos. What yeah. do you think people really, men really need to do? Because, of course, the men are most, as you say, they're agonized if they don't get to spend enough time with their children. It destroys their hearts and their purpose, really, yeah. as, as men. So what is it that is the most important checklist for men to deal with when they're facing these issues? I say four things have to happen. And for your children to do the best. And so number one is about an equal amount of time after divorce between mother and father. Doesn't make any difference how that time is divided. Uh, Whatever parenting plan is best for for you, it just has to be about an equal amount of time with mother and father. And I explain all the the reasons of the boy crisis for that. Uh, Number two, um, the children need to not detect or overhear any bad mouthing from mother about father or from father about mother. Um, that really undermines the child's belief in him, the part of himself or herself that is the other parent. We're all 50% the genes of our biological father and biological mother. And if our, we're being told that the bi- biological father is narcissistic or um, unreliable or a liar or um, irresponsible, um, we start looking in the mirror and saying, gee, Maybe I'm like that. After all, I am looking in the mirror. Maybe I'm narcissistic. Uh, Especially if the mom says, and I've heard this, I'm sure, the the mom says directly to the son, you're just like your father who's out. That that really shatters the bond. Exactly. And then then all those similarities of the the son to the father are seen more quickly. And the the son isn't able to articulate that to anybody. He can't say to the mother, I'm not like dad in a certain way. And why are you saying this? because he doesn't want to destabilize the one part of his life that's stabilized, yeah. um, his connection with his mom. He doesn't want to say it to dad because he doesn't want dad to get into more of a fight with the mom and destabilize his relationship further. So he keeps it inside of himself, which is part of what destroys himself and eats him, himself up. So that's number two, is no bad mouthing. Number three is that children do the best when the mother and father live within about 20 minutes driving uh, time from each other. Uh, so that the child doesn't resent the parent that is not the primary parent. Um, and um, when they have a, the children's, um, when they ha- their friends have a birthday party or when they're part of a soccer team and they can't go to soccer practice as often, um, and so they don't resent the parent that they have to go away from uh, out of state or you know 45 minutes drive where it's really a, hard to, uh, to get it together. Um, and then fourth is that there has to be um, consistent couples communication counseling not just when there's an emergency, you call the family together, because when there's an emergency, you tend to, time is, every, everybody's in time pressure, and you tend to take um, dichotomous positions with your spouse. When you have couples communication counseling, you have time to understand your spouse's point of view in a much more calm environment, 
and that is really uh, creates a sense of stability uh, that gets transmitted to the children. It's tough, you know. I mean, it's hard to have any kind of good story coming out of divorce because, of course, you don't want to badmouth the wife or the husband. But at the same time, if you say they're great, the question then becomes, well, why did you divorce? Oh, I love your mom. She's great. It's then, well, why are we living separately? It's very hard to come up with a cohesive narrative for kids. So let's, oh, so this, this goes way back for me, this question of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I remember probably 16, 17 years ago doing research for a book and coming across a nugget that kind of stuck with me. I don't know if it's been replicated since, but ADHD symptoms virtually vanish in boys when they're interacting with their fathers. Now, that does not strike me as an entirely biological illness, you know. I have a tumor, but when dad's around, it vanishes. You know, that, that doesn't make much sense to me. So where are things with ADHD at the moment? And of course, there are so many parents facing this issue, particularly with their sons. What are their options? Well, first of all, the bottom line first. Um, when children are raised predominantly by dads, only 15% are likely to have ADHD. Even though, and where they're raised predominantly by moms, 30% are likely to have ADHD. So the question is why? Do the, is it that the children that are in the worst shape are more likely to go to moms and therefore ADHD is more likely? No, actually the opposite is true. Children with developmental disabilities at the age of one are far more likely to go to dads. And yet after a few years, they're much less likely to have the developmental disability, most of the developmental disabilities, but especially um, not ADHD. So what is that about? The first thing is the fathers are far more likely to um, have the children be physical and be physical with them. They're far more likely to coach them. They're far, far more likely to roughhouse with them, as we just talked about. And, and children who do a lot of physical activity, are that's one of the antidotes to ADHD. Uh, the other is boundary enforcement. Um, we talked about the, um, the peas and the ice cream before. When a child learns to focus on getting the peas eaten in order to have the ice cream, the, the, the child learns attention focus, not attention deficit disorder, which is what the child learns when instead of finishing the peas, it can focus on manipulating a better deal and therefore has a deficit of attention doing what it needs to do, finish the peas in order to get the ice cream. Uh, whereas the dad, by requiring the child to finish the peas, requires the attention to be focused on the peas to do what the child has to do to get what the child wants to have. Huge difference. And because that um, floats into so many other things, such as um, the children who have that uh, um, attention focus, um, are far more likely to be able to focus on the discipline of learning the, 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 uh, the, the right plays in the basketball game, and so therefore are likely to be more physical on a, on a team, more likely to be able to go to the school and do a pickup game, uh, be able to train themselves to be a gymnast or whatever. And so they're all, and all of those things, physical activity, um, discipline, focusing, those are all ADHD-resistant um, things that, you, that don't require um, just prescription drugs to, um, to get used to. So you're absolutely right. When children are around fathers, especially fathers that are allowed to father in the way that fathers tend to father um, and, and are respected for fathering in that way, but also the fathers must respect the, the, the mother's way of mothering. Um, there is a value to negotiating deals with moms. Um, the, the kid says, 
um, can I climb the tree um, in the backyard? And the mother goes, no, sweetie, you're in a few years, yes. But right now, um, you know, the, the, you're not capable of climbing that high. And dad goes, you know, uh, the same question asked the dad. The dad's more likely to say something like, yeah, you could do that, but, but be careful. Um, yeah, or I'll be here if you fall. Yes, I'll be here. Well, but And with the mother, the mother's more likely to say, um, I'll tell, if, they, if they negotiate a deal between the two of them, what's more likely to happen is that the mother says, all right, you can climb the tree, but not above this level. And um, if and, and you got to be out there with them, Stefan or Warren, but give me the cell phone. I don't want you to get distracted. You're going to be out there with my son. And so the, mo the mother contributes a, a protector, you know, a sort of consciousness. And the father contributes a uh, let the child figure out what's safe and not safe to a large degree by himself uh, and or herself. And a result of that is the child gets the best of, the bo of both worlds. Uh, and from when kids are very young, you need that hypercaution. Yeah, I mean, toddlers are like death magnets, yes. you know, like, I mean, they could, so many things can just wipe them out. So you kind of need that hyper caution, uh, but trying to pry the mom off the hyper caution thing, you know, don't leave the house as a friend of mine, a comedian, Owen Benjamin, he says, uh, don't leave the house, Timmy, there's autism in the grass, you know, like this, this <laughs> level of caution, it's too much. And, and to, to the, one of the roles of fathers is to pry some of that hyper caution, because we understand that to not take risks is the greatest risk of all. If you don't go outside, you don't get healthy. Uh, if you don't learn how to manage risks, you'll end up making foolish decisions. Falling out of a tree is a lot better than driving poorly in a snowstorm in terms of consequences. So uh, for, for women in general, every slip every possible is like they're going to be in hospital it, it's going to be a body cast it's it's all over you know but for men it's like well yeah you need to learn if you fall off your bike that's one thing and that is going to give you caution when you go skiing down the double black diamond so there is no greater risk than no risk taking at all and i think we can see this with things like childhood obesity and the sort of bubble wrapped childhood uh, and so on so Sorry, I, I really didn't mean to take over that part. I, I apologize, but I just wanted yes, to point out that totally there is a tipping point where the male risk-taking displaces productively the female risk aversion, and, and it's hugely important for the risk aversion to be there earlier, but there is a tipping point that men and women need to navigate. Yes, and this is one of the reasons why children do so much better when they have both mother and father right. not only around but valued. Um, and and by and not only playing their traditional roles, but fathers that 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 my father, for example, um, came back from Europe after managing a company in Europe, and he um, got a, a, a eventually for, for a while he sold fuller brushes from door to door because um, he was older and couldn't get a, um, a a job. But then he eventually became a manager of a company, and they kept offering him higher and higher positions. And he just said right after the first position, nope. I have my economic stability. I want time with my kids, time with my family, not um, not more money. And um, I everything that that about my growing up benefited from more time with my dad, uh, not more. Um, you know, we we lived in a middle class home, and it was not you know great, and it was on an average neighborhood, um, but it was more than okay. Um, but the the time was where I learned you know how to be. Um, a good human being and a good man and have decent values. And um, and so, but with a mother and father, uh, that a father that's home to a greater degree um, and, the, the and the tension that you often have between 
protecting and not overprotecting and not un, not underprotecting and not overprotecting mothers and dads have to learn that those checks and balances are exactly what is needed so that instead of thinking that their t- their tension means that they're bad that they're not meant to raise children together and therefore they should get a divorce it's exa- in fact that tension is exactly what is needed to keep children not too protected but not too underprotected for example so now we're going to close but this is the time where Warren gets to blush, because I'm going to tell you why you need to read this book. And this is my very, very strongest recommendation. Just a reminder, the book title is The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. The website is Warren Farrell, W-A-R-R-E-N-F-A-R-R-E-L-L, warrenfarrell.com and twitter.com forward slash Dr. Warren Farrell. You can get the book through the website. So I'll tell you where, like why I love what you do so much and where I think your work stands why it's so important. And everybody, you know, you either were a boy, you know a boy, you're a grandparent, you're a niece, you're like, you know somebody, or you are somebody who's had to struggle with these issues. Everybody should read this book. Everybody should get a copy of this book. The problem with revolutions is knowing when to stop. That's always, it's like, we want them to be pendulums, but generally they're like avalanches, just gathering momentum until they wipe out entire villages. And This is the same, like, were there injustices in the Russian land ownership in the 19th century? Absolutely there were. Is the solution to kill all of the kulaks? No, it's not. Somewhere in the middle. Were there injustices against women and men? Yes, absolutely. Is then the point of replacing the patriarchy to create a matriarchy run by the state? No. And pushing back against this acceleration, standing before this tsunami of escalation, of revolutionary escalation, is the job of all civilized people, because we do want this thing to come to rest somewhere in the Aristotelian mean. And everyone who is pushing back against these escalations, against this snowballing mob mentality of gender relations, is to me a brother and a sister uh, in the diminishment of uh, escalation that is really the key to having a continually civilized society. So the work that you have done for many years now to push back against these escalations and to try and find something in the middle is to me absolutely essential. And we all welcome revolutions that redress grievances, but it always seems they go to the point of creating new grievances that then require another revolution to come back. And those of us who are struggling to try and hold the middle course Sometimes we'll get a lot of negativity from both sides, and it is a challenging place to be, and I just really wanted to express my very, very deep appreciation for the work that you've done. I hope I haven't mischaracterized where I see you, not exclusively, but to some degree, in what's going on, because if we can, as you say, create a dialogue rather than a monologue, monologues are dictatorial in essence, you know, it's finger-wagging and another thing, you know, and there's no chance to speak back. But where there is a dialogue, so also is there civilization and is there peace and is there the potential for a very conciliatory and positive future. And all of those who are working in this area have my enormous respect and you are certainly very high uh, on that list. So I really want to express at least my appreciation for that. Stefan, first, thank you very much. Second, you've characterized me exactly correctly. And the reason I've ended up doing couples communication workshops around the country is that I have come to understand that probably the single biggest contribution we can make to not taking every virtue to its extreme until it becomes a vice um, is by learning how to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. And that's probably the the Achilles heel of all human beings, especially when that uh, criticism comes from a loved one. And so um, I, I think if we want to keep families together, 
uh, not by legislation, but by it, 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 but by communication. Uh, this is what we need to start beginning to do in our elementary schools and our secondary schools. We we need to do this not only with families, but also with um, Republicans and Democrats and Libertarians and um, you know and radicals and, and every everyone needs to do much more dialoguing. Um, there, you know, every every simple every complex problem has a simple solution. The wrong one, and so we need to to be tolerant and inviting of these more complex solutions. So, no, you you pinpointed me in exactly where um, I feel I am. And thank Good. you. Well, I appreciate that. And just a reminder, I don't mean to be repetitive. Just pause the video, or listen, just click below. The boy crisis: why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. Dr. Farrell, thank you so much for your time. I look forward to our next chat. Yeah, me too, very much so. And any time, I just totally enjoy uh, our interaction and your your intellect, your thoughtfulness, and your, your balance.